Sonic Earth Expeditions. is a vast soundscape. You may have heard underwater recordings of whale song. And if you've gone snorkeling or diving, you've experienced some of the sounds firsthand. This is the sound of a parrotfish eating coral in Hawaii. There's also this whole other dimension when it comes to ocean acoustics. Under certain conditions, sound waves get pushed into a channel where they can travel for thousands of miles. It's called the SOFAR channel. To explain this phenomenon and to talk about the sonic sea, my guest is Dr. Chris Clark. He's the former director of the Bioacoustics Research Program at Cornell University and a faculty member in the Department of Neurobiology and Behavior. He spent his career raising awareness about the noise that humans are adding to the symphony in the ocean. His path began with an invitation. I was always interested in sound, and in particular I was interested in um, the engineering of hearing aids when I was a in college and in the university as a graduate student. And I happened to meet a family, a husband and wife, two scientists and their family. They were heading off to Argentina on a National Geographic expedition and they asked me if I would like to come down and join them in Argentina and live in a tent on a beach. <laughs> and um, prior to departing, um, Roger Payne, um, put a pair of headphones on me and said, here, listen to this. And he played me the sounds recorded underwater in this bay in Argentina. And I listened to the voices of southern right whales having conversations and carrying on. You could hear the breathing and the splashing and all this kind of stuff. And then that was, that was it. And then he played me some songs of humpback whales that he and Katie had been recording. The next thing I knew, I was in a tent in Argentina, and he walked in one evening after we had all finished our dinner out by the beach, brought in a great big reel-to-reel tape recorder, you know, with Sony reel-to-reel tape recorder and a bunch of tapes, and he put it down on the floor and he said, here, old bean, start recording. That's how it happened. I went down with, for two seasons, for two seasons, and the season down there, everything was reversed, of course, so it was their spring into summertime, or late winter into spring. And then later, my wife and I, Janie Moon, went down there and lived for two years. And um, 
Yes, you could hear the whales breathing in the water when you were outside having your dinner. Maybe, and then if they were asleep, you would actually hear them snoring and these loud, soniferous kind of gurgly growl blows and resonant sounds. Um, you'd hear them echoing off the cliffs. The bay was lined with these 150 foot high cliffs. And it was, it was enchanting, but at the same time sort of humorous to listen to a, a large, you know, 50 foot, 55 foot, 50 ton animal snoring just, uh, just a few feet away. <laughs> Natural sounds were always sort of just part of life. But I would say that the, my introduction to the underwater world of sound was uh, an experience that's, that stayed with me all my life. And the, the process of acoustic discovery or acoustic experiences where suddenly you're going, well, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go dip the hydrophone in the water here and just listen. And you have to be really patient. It's just like you're thinking of taking a photograph. You want that perfect photograph of the sunset, you know, and the clouds are there and the color's just right. Well, that doesn't happen every time. You have to be patient. You have to wait. And then you'll be rewarded because undoubtedly something is going to pop up into this acoustic scene that is unexpected. You may not know at all what it is. It could be a dolphin. It could be a crab, it could be a shrimp, or it could be a great whale. And when those happen, that's when the magnificent just, magnificence just flows you know, over the waterfall and you just go, oh my God, what was that? <laughs> I remember the first time I recorded, I was recording blue whales. And there, were, there was almost no information about blue whales, except that they had very low, deep voices and could sing very, very loudly. And the first time I was recording it on a piece of equipment that was very high quality piece of equipment and I was using, I was tapping into the US Navy hydrophones off of Labrador, Canada. And I didn't hear much of anything. I just heard the hum. It sounded like there was noise. It's like the noise you get when you if you're listening to the 60 hertz coming out of an old neon light, you know, just sort of this like this, and it's like, oh, shucks. I haven't wired it up right. I plugged the wrong plug in or something. The battery's dead, you know. I checked everything, and then I realized, oh, the voice of this animal is so low that my ears can't perceive it. And what I'm hearing are actually the overtones of the voice, of the notes of the song. And the note itself, unlike a bird song or, you know, voice, the note itself lasts 20 seconds to 25 seconds. And the pitch in the note doesn't change very much, so it just sounds like this nothing. It just sounds like noise, some, like some, you know, the, a motor is running in the background. But as soon as you speed it up, so I recorded it, recorded at regular speed and speed it up when you play back, and suddenly you heard, you heard the notes, you heard the rhythm, and you heard the song. And that was like, ah, oh, magic. <laughs> this recording
recording of a blue whale is being played at 20 times its original speed. Are they the only whale that sings below our hearing? No, fin whales sing, sing infrasonic. Uh, even humpbacks will produce notes that are so low that you and I can't hear them. And of course you have to realize that most humans, once they get past childhood, can't hear, you know, we're supposed to be able to hear to this low, low basso profundo, but you, you don't hear it, it's, or it's very alien to you, or in the case of the whales, these notes that they're singing, or these, whether they're calls or songs, when they're so low, they're typically long, they're, they're extended, so you don't hear the melody, you don't hear these beautiful glissando notes, you know, the kind of things. You just hear this like this. So it's not melodic to your ear. And this is when you have the experience of listening to all these different voices, even the super high frequency ones like a, the, the bats use and dolphins use. They're ultrasonic, so they're so high we can't hear them either. But dogs can hear them, right? You realize what I'm listening to in my regular life is only part of the symphony. It's really only a small portion of the full orchestra. And that then that makes you, at least it makes me, have, forces me to go, Chris, you have to change your mind. You have to change your expectations. Don't think that everything has to conform to your abilities. No, no, no. There are other options in life for listening that are beyond your normal capability. And so, yes, we create tricks. So we speed things up or slow them down or shift them in frequency, right? So you, you're trying to get them, these phenomenon, to somehow come into your auditory perspective. Just like we know that there are, are, there's, there are forms of light that my eyes cannot perceive, but a bee perceives them or a hummingbird perceives them, or I can make an instrument and put it on the moon that it can perceive them. So that's when you just say, oh, there's a world of sensory exploration out there that my observation, my normal observation capabilities are blind to or deaf to. And that's an that's a interesting experience to have when you realize the limitations of, even though you're trying as hard as you can to hear it, you realize that there are limits, but you can overcome those limits and then experience something that you would never have experienced otherwise. Tell me a little bit about how sound travels underwater. First, you have to think of it as it's not uniform temperature. And it's temperature changes as you go into different places. So if you're up in the Arctic, the temperature of the ocean is actually one degree below freezing. But because it's in motion, it doesn't freeze typically. And as you go down in depth, the temperature changes. So there's a if you think of it as a thermometer, well, you drop a thermometer in the ocean and the temperature at the surface is different than the temperature in the, you know, 300 feet down or 1,000 feet down or two miles down. The temperature changes and the pressure changes. So what you essentially have is the ocean is like a prism. So just like a prism takes light, which has lots of different frequencies in it, and when the light from the sun goes through the prism, the prism refracts the light and turns it into a multicolored rainbow, right? That's called refraction. So it's splitting out all the different frequencies. 
Well, the ocean does the same thing, only he's doing it with sound. And so what happens is that the different frequencies travel different pathways through the ocean. Because just like the light of sun travels different pathways through the prism. And you get this change of arrivals of sound, and you also get the pl a place in the ocean which is the sound channel. Sound gets trapped. So the sound this tends to get trapped into this layer called the sound, the sofar channel. It's the sound frequency and ranging channel. And it's bizarre because when you experience it, it's almost, it is magical. And you've probably heard of um, like tr old train stations, which were domes, right? And you could have these whispering galleries where you can stand up next to a wall and you can whisper and someone all the way across the room, hundreds of feet away, you can have a conversation with someone. And that's what it's like in the ocean. So the sound gets trapped into a thin layer, relatively speaking. Hence, the voice of a blue whale singing off of Ireland can be heard off of Virginia in the United States. Or the voice of a blue whale singing off of um, Newfoundland can be heard all the way down in off Puerto Rico. And you've heard those. I heard those. Now, I was made aware of this possible phenomenon by this, those same people, Roger and Katie Payne, when I was in Argentina, because he had just published a paper that hypothesized that prior to modern shipping and all the noise made by modern commercial shipping, the oceans were quiet enough and the whales' were, voices were loud enough and low enough that they could travel across an ocean. And I actually experienced that, and that's when, you know, the hair goes up on the back of your neck and you're just going, oh my God, Roger and Doug were right. This, you can hear a whale thousands of miles away. I also learned from my good friend, Navy commander named Chuck Gagnon, that you get, the rule of thumb is, um, it's about one minute to travel 50 miles. So if we're, you're a whale and I'm a whale and I'm singing and we're 300 miles apart, you just take 300 divided by 50 and six minutes later, my song will reach your ear, right? This is another dimension of just like I talked about how low it was and you had to change your ability to listen to very, very low sounds that are very, very long and stretched out. Well, you also now have to deal with how long it takes for the sound to reach your ears. It's mind-blowing. It really is. These animals are moving around the ocean as though they have a map of the ocean. And I believe that they actually have an acoustic memory that defies ours, right? We have visual memory. We have ex exquisite a visual memory, right? I mean... I, I know that you could probably close your eyes right now and you could get up from your chair and walk out of the room you're in and go into the kitchen or go to your bedroom. You could see all that in your mind, right? right? In fact, we call that the mind's eye. But now imagine that you can't do that with your eyes in the ocean because you can barely see your tail. But you can hear things that are coming at you from hundreds of miles away, tens of miles away. Your, your world is acoustic. So I think they have a mind's ear where they can actually memorize, just like deaf 
like blind people can have sensory capabilities beyond most normal people when it comes to hearing, right? Right? Try walking down a hallway sometime with the doors open and doors closed and with your eyes open and your eyes closed and you will you can hear the difference between that that phenomenon going down a hallway with doors open and doors closed. Anyway, I know I'm going on and on, but it's it's a it's a transformation of your mindset that is um, one very exciting but also very humbling because you realize your own limitations but the recognition of your limitations opens a door into discovery that you would not otherwise have the sonic world that you're describing though is a healthy sonic world is that right so as i said um Roger Payne and Doug Webb had written this paper back in 1971, that's a long time ago, where they raised the prospect that our intrusions, acoustic intrusions into the ocean, could be making it difficult for whales to communicate, especially, in this case, it was singers. These are male animals that are out there singing their lungs out, and their songs and their voices are beautifully uh, matched to the long-range transmission, right? So even a humpback whale will sing, have a basso profundo voice, which is down in the very, very lowest octaves, right? But they'll also have the, you know, the soprano voice, which is way, 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 you know, seven octaves higher than that, right? So nothing much happened with that idea that they raised in 1971 until pretty much about in the 1990s, 35, no, sorry, 25 years later or so, right? And suddenly the consciousness, the human consciousness returned to, oh, we have ships constantly traveling across the ocean in massive shipping lanes, right? These these, shipping, these ships and these shipping lanes make the Los Angeles Freeway or the Long Island Freeway look like, you know, a dirt path. I mean, these are huge ships traveling constantly to bring, it's international commerce. You know, 95% of goods moving around the world travel on the backs of ships, right? That's the way the global economy works. So now the noise from those ships it has risen the, the noise level that whales would naturally have to communicate through. I mean, a storm comes on, it gets really noisy, everybody shuts up for a while, and I'll call you back on Monday kind of thing, right? But now there are places in the ocean that are urbanized and they're even industrialized where it's so noisy. And that's raised the question, is any of this, all this din that we're injecting into the ocean, uh, should we care? Should, does it make a difference? Um, and then another large gorilla entered the room, so to speak, and that was the way we explore for oil and gas in the ocean. And the trick there is to generate as large a sound, an explosion, if you will, as possible, to generate enough energy that it's going to go down into the seafloor and penetrate into beneath the into the bottom of the ocean, into depth, 
and get reflections back. And those reflections will tell you, oh, this, the geology of this area uh, implies that there, is, there are fossil fuels. So it's oil and gas exploration, right? And these instruments that humans have built are magnificent engineering feats that require a huge amount of investment and a lot of technology, and et cetera, et cetera, especially all the information coming back to create these maps and to make the discovery. And they're motivated by the fact that humans in the last 100, 150 years have been able to improve our standard of living by using the energy trapped in fossil fuels, right? It's, it's, some of this isn't, this isn't rocket science. It's just this is human civilization. But the consequences of setting off an explosion, it is as loud as you can possibly make it. It basically boils water. This thing, this explosion is so loud, it lifts the ocean up like a giant acoustic hammer every 10 seconds for days and days and weeks and months at a time. And not just one of these things roaming around the ocean doing it, but dozens of these explorations. The, the implication of that for life in the ocean has not been fully understood. We now know from work off of Australia that if you looked at how much krill was alive and how much of these in little invertebrates which support the life systems of the ocean, how much was there before and how much was there after the seismic vessel setting off these detonations? How much was there before and after? Well, it killed all the krill. Well, if you kill krill at that level of efficiency, and you think of how many explosions are going on and off every day throughout the world searching for hydrocarbons in the ocean, that can't be good because if you kill your the whole ecosystem that supports the life the higher trophic levels in the ocean the fish that we eat or the fish that feed the fish that we eat 70% of protein in the countries in the Pacific Rim come from the ocean you know you just look at the scale of this it's like wait a minute what are we doing uh, and then the part of the sad truth is, okay, we're harvesting hydrocarbons, fossil fuels, to, to energize our civilization, and the byproduct of those fossil fuel utilizations is leading to climate change, <laughs> right? So these are these explosions the same reason I can hear an explosion from a geophysical survey off of Ireland, I can hear those explosions on my recorders off of Virginia, off of Massachusetts, off of Georgia. The same reason I can hear those is the same reason I can hear a whale singing off of Ireland and I can hear its voice. For people, when there's a sound that's too loud or unpleasant, 
One universal reaction is to put our hands over our ears. Marine mammals obviously don't have that option to escape the sound of seismic testing. There are sort of havens that you can go into, sort of these acoustic caves. You can come to the surface, so if you spend time near the surface, the energy from that explosion will not be audibly, won't propagate very efficiently into the surface. So that's one thing you can do. Um, there are places where you can get into sound shadows. You can basically hide behind large islands with the sounds basically reflect and go bend around it. And, you know, the, the tricks that you and I could play if we wanted to get away from someone setting off cherry bombs all the time, right? Um, you can't cover your ears, right? You can't do that. So there, there are some ways that you can compensate for this invasion, but it's not, it's not foolproof and it's not, it's not adaptively successful because if you're spending all your time hiding from the sounds, you're losing opportunities to feed, you're losing opportunities to communicate, losing opportunities to participate in reproduction. You know, basic life functions are now influenced and you're, we're intruding into that world. And the thing is, it's not just the whales because one of the um, discoveries, many of the discoveries that has been, have been made over the last 20, 10, even five years are that, oh my gosh, all the animals in the ocean are either producing or listening to sounds. We don't know of deaf marine animals, right? Because if you're not paying attention to sound in one form or another, you're compromised your ability to detect a predator, find your food, maintain your social network. All the things that we do to maintain our civilization are compromised by all the noise we're dumping in the ocean. You recently testified on Capitol Hill about seismic testing. What are your efforts to create awareness uh, about underwater noise pollution, essentially? It's basically my, my life's work. Um, and part of that comes from a passion for the symphonies of life, whether it's a concerto written by a master and then played by a master, um, or whether it's um, just going out and walking in the woods and listening to the songs of spring or the songs of fall. It, you know, that's, it's that, uh, because I'm in love with the acoustic world. And then the other challenge, the real challenge, is trying to communicate the scale of our insult into the natural world or these insults into the natural world. And you're trying to find a way to connect, uh, to connect the empathy, right? It's the, why should I care if a sh all the ships that are giving me a great life, you know, um, lifestyle, why should I care if all those ships are making it noisy in the ocean? I mean, what's, what's it to me, right? There's that sort of anthropocentric, self-centered kind of attitude, which is, um, I don't believe, I think that's learned because I've never met a child that has not been um, enthralled by listening to a whale or going out and finding a frog sitting there croaking and 
you know, oh, that's what makes that sound, or, you know, lightning bugs in, in August, <laughs> right, that kind of thing. And it's that connecting to, I, I think of this as the singing planet, because everywhere you go, life is resounding with the songs of life, right? These are these moments, and song is the connection. So when I, I mean, one of the reasons I think that Katie and Roger Payne's record, Songs of the Humpback Whale, had such a profound impact on people is that they couldn't believe, wait a minute, this is a whale composing this music? Highly complex, repetitious. They clearly learn from each other. They clearly copy each other. These guys are like, like, it's almost like a Pied Piper and a Corchester all in one. Jazz musicians. And you're going, wow, we're not alone. We're not the only ones that can do these amazing things with their voices. And then you discover that they actually can do more things than their, with their voices than we can. There are whales that sing with two voices. Totally unrelated. One is playing the bongos and the other one is making these beautiful glissandos, right? So... So the question of how does one get across the message is one is by showing my passion and my empathy and my trying to translate my experiences into something that most people can make a meaningful connection and that's through voice and through song and listening. The other way that um, I've often found very effective is by converting this acoustic phenomenon that we were talking about of, okay, you're setting off an explosion every one second. I mean, sorry, every 10 seconds. An explosion that's so loud it travels across an ocean that if it's set off of um, Portugal, I will hear that 35 minutes later across the Atlantic Ocean. Or if it's set off in the southern hemisphere, I will record it off Hawaii two hours later. Right? And so you're trying to get across the scale, and the only really way to make that connection with people is to visualize it. So you convert these acoustic scenes into a visual representation, and you show, here's the, here's the bomb going off, down here, off of Cape Town, South Africa. Bomb. And you watch that spread out, and 10 seconds later, there's another one. And there's another one. There are all these ripples just going out like rings on a surface of a pond. And then hours later, it shows up off Bermuda. And it shows off of the Canadian Grand Banks. And you're going, that's the scale. And you can't hide from it. You can't get around it. It's just there. Ten seconds at a time, day after day. And what does this do to life in the ocean? Now that's another difficult question to answer because just as I told you about the voice of a blue whale and the voice is a note lasts 20 seconds. It's not, a, it's not something like a songbird. It's, it, everything is totally stretched out in time. How can you prove in a lifetime that the things we're doing now and the things we did 20 years ago and the things we did 30 years ago are actually changing the chances of life existing in the ocean. 
because I would have to teach my children and they would have to teach their children by the time we had proof. And we are now playing with this one experiment, an N of one experiment. You get one chance and we shouldn't take exception with that chance. We shouldn't fiddle with it. We should recognize that life on the planet depends on all of us. What are some of the solutions that you see to underwater noise pollution? The first step has come and is in process, and that is overcoming denial. So for a long time, it was you know, someone's pointing a finger at me and I figured, I turn around and go, oh, they must be pointing at whoever it is behind me, right? So there was denial on the part of the U.S. Navy. There was part denial on the part of the Royal Navy. There was denial on the part of the shipping companies. There was denial on the part of the energy exploration companies, right? Just like there was denial about throwing garbage in the ocean or dumping toxic waste in your backyard, right? Ah, whatever, you know, it's a big ocean, right? Just let it go, right? Oh, and then suddenly babies are coming out deformed and people are dying of cancer, et cetera, et cetera. Well, so that's part of it is we're past the stage, mostly past the stage of denial. There's still some denial. And in some cases, it's sort of justified because if I told you your value in our society is to go find fuel that I can burn, to drive my cars, to do this, to do, da, 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 and you're really good at it, and you get a triple A rating because you're really that good at it, then I turn around and say, you're bad, right? You've, you've, you've been misbehaving. It's like, well, wait a minute. Society wanted me to find hydrocarbons, and I did all the right things to find hydrocarbons, and now you're telling me I'm bad. But denial, we're past denial. The shipping industry knows, and it's being built into the international maritime organizations, it's in the charter, that noise, we gotta cut down on noise because it's harmful to the ocean and that in, in eventually, and even now, is harmful to us and our existence. Mm -hmm. So that's a big step. And you can't, I mean, think of the things that are going on right now off the United States, where there are, there's a huge initiative to build wind turbines, wind farms off the United States. The requirements of those industries trying to put wind turbines off the United States are orders of magnitude more strenuous than the present shipping requirements for noise, the present requirements for seismic exploration, any of that stuff. So we are slowly moving through that process of saying, no, if you're going to do this in the ocean and you're going to generate noise or you're going to harm endangered species, you're going to harm our fish, then we have to take all these precautions, right? And so it's happening. And there are people that I can remember being in rooms where people would not be talking to each other because the other one was the devil, right? And you get all these clubs building up. And my club is the righteous club and yours is the bad club, you know, that kind of thing. A lot of that is broken down, and trust needs to be built between the individuals and the cultures they represent, right? 
And because you know very well, and I think our audience will understand very well, that there are certainly times in our lives where there's somebody, we don't like them. We don't like what they do. We don't like the way they dress. For whatever reason, we don't like them. We probably don't even know them, right? But we formed a bias in some way. So that was what was happening in the 30, 40 years ago, is when you got in a room and there was someone there from the oil and gas industry, or there was someone there from the shipping industry, or there was someone there from a Navy, they were the bad guys. They had little horns coming out of their heads and they had pointed tails coming out of their backside. It's like, whoa, right? And then once you start realizing that they're human beings just like you, many of them have deep ethical values that, that they adhere to, you need to communicate and you need to understand and it's a matter of human compromise, right? Mm -hmm. It's culture. Yeah. And so our cultures are getting in the way, but that needs to change as well. Did I see online that you're working with a wind turbine organization? So this is a, um, a subsidiary of a large Spanish company called Iberdrola and mm -hmm. it's called Vineyard Wind and they are in the advanced stages of moving forward with uh, building a wind farm south of the islands of Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard, right? And <clears throat> as I've said to them, and I'll say it again, I'm not working for you to advocate for wind. I don't need to do that. You have plenty of people that can advocate for why wind is better or cleaner, or renewable, et cetera, et cetera. I'm here to advocate for the ocean, the living ocean. So I'm going to be representing as best I can all the, the whales and the fish and the, you know, all the sea urchins and whatever else is out there to basically point out the fact of where we, when, we, when we could do better or if we don't know how to do better, we should find out. Right? And some of that takes an investment in a long-term knowledge gathering process, which is often referred to as science right, or knowledge gathering, um, because in many of these cases we have, we either have mythology that is guiding our decisions, and the mythology is based on, well, someone told me that this happens on Sunday afternoon at three o'clock. It's like, well, how did that happen, right? Or well-intentioned mythology, but, well, let's find out, really, Let's do the work it takes to re understand what the impacts of our behaviors are on the ocean. So uh, it's a very exciting um, time for me because I'm working with people who are much younger than I am, uh, very bright and very motivated and very dedicated to making sure we can harvest energy, wind energy, offshore, and it's renewable. We can harvest it with very little impact on the ocean health and if we if there is impact if we've identified the impact we actually do everything we can to monitor it and understand its short-term implications and its long-term implications are wind turbines loud underwater oh it depends depends on a bunch of things and it's and then also the loudness is going to be dependent upon whether it's a low frequency or high frequency right um and so these are the understanding of that the amount of noise that a wind turbine makes depends upon how it's put into the ocean is it a stick that's driven down into the substrate and sticks out 
and then it has a big pinwheel on top that goes around and around and around and the whole thing vibrates, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there are, the best knowledge comes from, from Europe, mostly Euro Northern Europe, and now from the British, um, you know, sorry, the U United Kingdom, British Isles. So off of Wales and off of Scotland and off of England, there are wind farms, right? Just like there are off of Denmark and Norway and Germany. Um, but that's a different, it's a different cohort of biology that we have there, but there's a lot of information that's now being learned from these longer-term studies. The good news is that the companies that are involved in this are aware of their environmental responsibility. That environmental responsibility is now pretty much global. And yes, there are still a lot of hills to climb and battles to fight, but the the, um, to go back to your question, I don't, I don't think that we have all the answers yet as to what are the short-term and long-term risks to the environment and to life in the ocean from these different initiatives. There's no free lunch. There's certainly no free lunch. There, you can't put 200 turbines offshore spaced you know, a mile apart, cover that, that amount of space, and not think that someone's going to be losing something, whether it's a crab or a fish or a fisherman or whatever it is. But the, the, but the, the counterpoint to that is, okay, well, do we want to keep burning coal and oil and gas? Or we, you know, we want to continue to rely on nuclear energy? What's, what, or what are our choices? And that's where it gets really, really interesting because the discussions move away from technology, they move away from science, they move into really our culture. What are our values, right? How do we treat each other? How do I want my community to exist? Do I, do I like the social fabric of a small town or a large city? How do we as people live together in a, in a holistic sense? Dr. Clark is arguably at his most persuasive when he's celebrating the sounds of the ocean's inhabitants. One of my favorite audio clips that he provided for this interview is that of bearded seals. I solemnly swear that I did not alter this audio. That is one of the most amazing sounds I've ever heard. Tell me about recording the sounds of bearded seals. Uh, bearded seals must be out of their minds. Um, the first time I ever heard a bearded seal, it was off of Point Barrow, Alaska, in about minus 30 degrees Celsius, very cold put a hydrophone into a hole, a crack in the ice. This is miles offshore. The, the world around you is, the ocean is frozen. You're in, semper, uh, you're, sorry, you're in sensory deprivation. It's so cold that you're, you know, you're, everything's bundled up. You're, you're just insulated like crazy. 
the sky, the, the, every, the scene is entirely just a series of colors from white to gray to dark, right? But you put the hydrophone down into the crack in the ice and lower it down maybe 20 or 30 or 40 feet. And it just, it's a zoo. You hear these absolutely wild voices of these seals that you swear must be from Mars or something. It's like, this is, this is a spaceship that just is landing on an iceberg, right? Because they spiral out of the ether <clears throat> all the way down into your, your hearing, you know, your acoustic phobia. And then they just, then they take off because they come all the way down. And then they just take off. It's like, it really sounds like it's a, a spacecraft lifting off of the planet. And you're going, what in hell is that? And then another one comes in, and another one. Then you realize, oh, these, ah, these are animals that live underneath the ice in complete, almost 100% ice cover. How on earth do they make a living out here? And then, so that was, that was part of it, just the experience of this magical kind of, the, the, someone's done their water with a synthesizer for sure, right? Well, they inflate a sack in their, in their throat, it's a resonant sac, and they produce these sounds that are unworldly. And then, here's another fun part about it. You go into a tent, and you're visiting one of the Inupiat elders who's hunting on the ice, and you try and describe this to them and what they're doing, and they just look at you with a smile on their face, and they go, you know, Ugaluk. It's a bearded seal. They know exactly this voice. And then they explain to you that they can take the paddle and put it up against their jaw and dip the broad part of the paddle into the water and they listen to them. Right? And they know that a certain part of that song, which is produced by males in the springtime, competing with other males for territory in this dynamic, moving morass of ice, right? And competing for the love affair with a female, hopefully. They know that there's a part of that song that indicates that the male is about to return to the surface because he has to breathe. And they use that as their hunting technique because they hunt the seals and they use the seal skin. That's how they make their boats. Their boats are made out of the seals, the skin of the bearded seal. Oh, wow. And the sinew that they use to sew the skins together is made from bearded seal and you're going you guys have been doing this for a couple of thousand years haven't it of course you know you teach your children how to listen to the ocean and they don't have hydrophones they don't have batteries and they don't have tape recorders they have a paddle in their ear but they are in unison with those animals they don't over hunt them they only hunt them to make the seal skin boats but the sound is out of this world. Dr. Clark's scientific observations border on the poetic. In the TED Talk he gave called Why Listen to the Ocean's Voices, he described a cycle in the ocean. His interpretation of the science is 
that the ocean is breathing. I've been working with my best friend, Chuck Gagnon, for almost 30 years. He was a Navy <clears throat> professional, anti-submarine warfare listener, and he taught me how to listen to the ocean in a way that I've never experienced before. And Chuck um, uses these acoustic um, systems in the ocean that are designed for listening for submarines, but he listens for whales, or he listens for things that are natural. And um, on one occasion, we were, and what he does is he finds something that's, that's odd, and we, we, I help collect it acoustically, and then I, I listen to it, and I take it apart, and I analyze it, and we try and figure it out. So one of the early things that he did was um, he pointed the acoustic telescope, if you will. This is like a large, giant parabola, like they have at football games or athletic events where you can listen to someone talking all the way across the room, right? And um, something, there was this bloom of energy that happened after the sun went down. And it lasted for many, many hours, and then it went away. And um, he was aiming his telescope at basically a coral reef, shallow water coral reef, full of life, absolutely full of life. And it turns out what, what we were discovering was the collective energy from thousands and tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of little tiny organisms called sea urchins. And they have, they rasp and they clean the, the rocks and the coral. They eat the algae and they're scraping. It's millions of little voices. It's like millions of raindrops hitting the surface of the ocean and creating this, this loud, you know, omnipresent sound. So Chuck kept listening. He kept looking for these things. And one time he was pointing us into the deep part of the ocean where there weren't any coral reefs and there weren't any islands. And we were observing this phenomenon of energy, sound energy, that's showing up like this faint glow, like a will-o'-the-wisp in the images. And it would come and go depending upon the time of day. As the sun went down, it would rise and then it would fall again and would disappear. And I'm convinced that what we're listening to is we are listening to something that happens throughout the world in the ocean every day, and it's the rising of life in the ocean, rising toward the surface to feed on organisms, the diatoms and all of, all of these organisms that, that support life, it's the vertical, the daily vertical, the deep, deep scattering layer that comes to the surface. So the way I was thinking about this is this phenomenon that's happening in sca at scales over huge, huge areas throughout ocean basins, right? On a daily basis, and this has been going on for millions of years. These are the organisms that are converting carbon dioxide into oxygen. The Half the oxygen you and I breathe comes from the ocean, from this phenomenon, this rising and falling. So I imagine it as though it's a breath, the daily breath of life, up and down, providing the oxygen into the atmosphere that, that from which we survive. And that's the way I think of it, is like, oh, it's on a scale that's, it's like this large giant just breathing, but it's the ocean breathing, and it's breathing for us, and that's why we're here. 
It's really poetic, and I noticed that when you uh, finished your TED Talk, you seemed very emotional about it, and the response that you got and that you're seeing more and more of as, as you've gone through your career, how does that make you feel about our hope for our sonic world? Uh, all of the above. Because <laughs> at times, that yes, I was crying at the end of that presentation um, internally and externally because it's I don't know I don't I don't mean this in a self-aggrandizing way it's just that it sounds so it's it seems so huge and I feel as though I'm at the one time at the one point, um, and this is, these are experiences that I've had in the Arctic and I've also had in the Central African Republic where you feel microscopically unimportant, right? Standing on the edge of the ice at 2 o'clock in the morning as the sun is skirting along the edge of the horizon and the water is the warmest place around because it's one degree below zero but the air is minus 40 degrees and whales are flying through the air. It's magical. And you just feel like, oh, I'm nothing. But at the same time, you're totally connected. Like you're on a Mobius strip. You're just going around and around and around, right? It's like going from zero to infinity in one breath. And that's where, when I have these kinds of moments like that and trying to express it to people in an audience because you're trying to connect on, on a certain level, um, it is not about you, right? You're the translator. You're somehow the, the person who has the opportunity to explain this magical experience, this magical moment, that you don't want to be a moment. You want it to just be drawn out and let everybody have a taste of it. And then realize, oh, life is more than special. You know, it's a once in a lifetime. I do get poetic because I don't have any other way of expressing it. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Chris Clark, for sharing his expertise and his underwater recordings. If you'd like to learn more about him, you can check out his bio page on birds.cornell.edu. I'll put the link in the show notes, and I'll also include a link to his TED Talk. This podcast is handcrafted. I edit and mix, and I also compose and perform the incidental music. You can find more of my music on major streaming platforms. I publish as Cosmic Piano. If you'd like to show your support, I'll also be including music and field recordings from the podcast for purchase on my Bandcamp site. That's at cosmicpiano.bandcamp.com. I'm Mary Beth Toole, and you've been listening to Sonic Earth Expeditions. Until next time, thank you, and remember, better living through listening. Happy trails.